episode of the ESG Beat, we will hear from former Delaware Supreme Court Chief Justice Leo Strine. For over two decades, Justice Strine presided over some of the most influential corporate law cases. He has also authored numerous leading articles in corporate law and corporate governance. As one of the most influential judges overseeing corporate America, he has long argued that companies need to do more to protect their workers. He has recently joined Wachtell Lipton, a firm known for advocating for stakeholder capitalism. Today, we will discuss the board's fiduciary duties under Delaware law, as well as several corporate governance reforms that he is championing to increase worker voice and ensure that capitalism remains sustainable. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Justice Strine. Amelia, it's great to be with you and your listeners. So until recently, you served as the Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court. So it may not surprise you that I'd like to start with Delaware law. And as you know, there's been a renewed debate about corporate purpose and whether Delaware law requires directors to make shareholder welfare their sole focus. In 2015, you covered this territory. You authored a response to that very question in an article entitled The Dangers of Denial. And back then, you made it very clear that Delaware corporate law requires directors to make stockholder welfare the sole end of corporate governance within the limits of their legal discretion, of course. I want to ask you today, is that still your view of Delaware law? Yes. And it's it, it's an interesting thing, Amelia, because I, as you know, where I normatively am is a different place than my description of where what the law is. But I'm I'm actually a person who has a comes out of an intellectual tradition where people like Franklin Roosevelt, George Orwell, uh, the good Adolf, who was an advisor to Roosevelt, Adolf Early. You know, those are the people who are clear-eyed about the world because I think you have to be clear-eyed if you want to make it better, and pretending that the world is what you want it to be is not going to be particularly helpful. And I think this debate has actually gotten frustrating because you don't have to look at Leo Strine. You can say Chancellor William Allen, who we lost in the last year, um, a dear mentor and friend, legendary judge, Chancellor Chandler, amazing judge, Vice Chancellor Lamb, Justice Jacobs. These people all read Delaware law the same way because there's an iconic case called Revlon and that, you know, and everybody says, well, Revlon's the exception to the rule. No, the reason, Amelia, if you think about it, right, what Revlon says for your listeners is when you're selling the company for cash, right, and there's no tomorrow, that you have to try to get the highest price. And you can't consider these stakeholders. Now, why is that the case? Because it states the general rule. And the general rule it says in the case is in the ordinary course of business, right, you can consider your workers or the communities or other stakeholders if there's a rational relationship to the best interest of stockholders, right? That's the general rule. And the reason why in the sale that you can't do that is because, you know, when it comes down to just taking the cash, there's no rational relationship. So everybody, all the Delaware judges, and by the way, we're very diverse politically. You know, we have a bipartisan judiciary. So the folks who I mentioned have great respect. They don't share, you know, they consider, many of them consider me like the out there liberal guy, which I kind of am. You know, I never changed from liberal to progressive because I was never embarrassed by the term or, or hid my identity. But when you're looking at making the world a better place, you can't pretend that it's something different than it is. And it also is the case in part of my article, as, as you know, was about Amelia was. When you look at the structure of our statute, 
it's clear who the citizens of the corporate republic are, the, the stockholders. You know, that is not something to ignore. The statute is fundamental. And so you notice I didn't use the term, I used terms like best interest or welfare. We're not, none of us in Delaware have ever articulated some stockholder primacy thing. You don't see that in Delaware cases. We don't use those words and we don't talk about maximizing short-term profits. But what we do say is this, you're supposed to within, and where it's important to think about within the limits of the law, which is, and we can talk more about that, but within the limits of the law, and there is also an ethical component, which is if you're making you know, decisions that really fundamentally, I don't think directors should be forced to do something that they think is really immoral. For example, what if the company operates in a market that allows child labor? I don't think any Delaware court would ever and ever has made directors do that. Now, frankly, there's also good arguments why that would be good for stockholders to avoid doing icky stuff. But I do think there's room to just say there are basic sort of things we won't do. But generally, right, you're supposed to run it for the best interests of the people who own um, the equity. That's, you know, it's kind of the nature, if you think about it, of a for-profit business, right? I mean, kind of you think about a for-profit business this way. So I think that is what the law is. And a good, good reason to, to understand that that is the law is why Delaware thought it was important to actually pass a public benefit corporation statute, which expressly has a different model and where it's a shall obligation towards stakeholders. If, if everybody already believed in Delaware that all Delaware corporations, I've heard some people say, all Delaware corporations are really public benefit corporations. Well, that's kind of news to everybody who makes the law in Delaware, right? And, you know, maybe these folks have a genius insight and we're just kind of simpletons in our three-county state. None of us really understand our law. Or it could be that we actually do. And we're pretty clear-eyed about what it is and what it is not. And we've actually given people a really positive option if you want to go further. But we recognize what our law is. It gives people, by the way, lots of flexibility when you're running the business to, you know, be other regarding to your stakeholders. But fundamentally, it does focus on the best interests of stockholders, and it gives the stockholders such enormous power over the corporation in terms of their voting rights and their rights to sue, but particularly their voting rights, right? They elect the directors, and they can, they, they're the ones who vote on mergers and, and charter changes and stockholder proposals. And the reality is it's very difficult if you're not pleasing them um, to, you know, long-term stay in control of the company. So that's... You know, I I hate to upset the people for whom wishes were horses, but you know, if wishes were horses, we could ride in the Kentucky Derby tomorrow. And if wishes could just come true, I would have you know, you'd be looking at somebody with bangs. <laughs> it's actually quite good for your audience that they only have to listen to my voice. So I wanted to drill down a bit more um, on the trade-off issue, right? Which is very. Um, evident in the current pandemic in a way where it wasn't evident in the bull market. So in the bull market, you know, we could say, look, it's the business judgment rule. Um, it, in the long term, everybody's going to, all these stakeholder interests are going to converge. We all know that the business judgment rule is quite broad. But if there is a scenario as companies are facing today with a clear trade-off between shareholder value in the short and long term, and other stakeholder interests, so employee 
welfare employee benefits. What does Delaware law require with respect to those trade-offs? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I'll give you the, I, I don't want to be evasive about it, but if you just come into court and say, look, in the long term, stockholders are going to be worse off if we do the following things for our employees and our creditors and communities, but we're going to do them anyway. You're going to have difficulty because, you know, there's a reason why it's called, by the way, the business judgment rule, right? It's not called the stakeholder welfare rule. It's not called, you know, moral. I love moral money. Like the new FT thing is a great thing. It's not called the moral judgment rule. It's called the business judgment rule. And so one of these cases, you know, this from studying the history of corporate law, when Henry Ford, who could have said why he, he was sued, by the way, the, by the Dodge brothers for people historically, the famous case about this was weird because Amelia, they wanted a larger dividend to go form a competing company. But he came into court and said, I'm not doing this to benefit stockholders. In fact, it'll hurt the company. I'm doing this because I'm a great guy and we want to treat our workers well. Had he said the following, by treating our workers well, we have a good reputation with the public and the people who buy our products. We're also creating a class of people who will be able to buy our products. By facilitating wages that allow people to buy cars, we will encourage the government to build a rep network of roads and our industry can become very fundamental. So we think that frankly, treating our workers well is quite consistent with the interest of our stockholders. He would have won that case. The only recent case is something like, uh, I think a case involved Craigslist, where again, the, the founder kind of came in and said, I'm doing this because I'm a great guy and we have values and you know, who cares about the stockholders? What I'm saying is typically, there is a lot of discretion if a board would say, look, we, you know, link of Google's cafeteria. I got to go there once. You know, they have like all these different themes and stuff and 5,000 kinds of And your of food. favorite, kombucha. Yeah, yeah, kombucha. Exactly. I love it. a good vinegar shot in the morning. And um, uh, is if you, you know, what they would say, obviously, is we want the talent. That's part of why we have laundry services and everything. We want people engaged and happy so we can get the best talent. By having the best talent, that's going to help our stockholders. And we may at times, frankly, need to give a priority to our workers. So as long as you can phrase it, that's why I said it's a, re, a, a rational relationship to the best interest of stockholders. So, but if you put things in a different, you know, a sort of zero sum game, I think, and go into court and phrase it that way, do I, do I think you have problems under the business judgment rule? I think you do. More practically, it's not about courts, right? The reason, and we can talk about the reason that workers are getting shorted in comparison to stockholders is not because of courts. No court has said you can't give the same kind of raise you would have given in the past. You know, if it was 1975, 65, or even 1985, and the company's profits had grown and productivity had grown, there would typically be a gain sharing between the workers and the stockholders. That gain sharing has eroded for the workers in favor of the stockholders. Is that because there's any judicial decision? No, it's because the boards know who elects them. They face withhold campaigns, right? They face direct stockholder proposals. They face the potential for activism. Um, stock analysts and institutional investors critique when employees get wage increases and, and CEOs get criticized. Activists push you know, out offshoring jobs. 
And so the power structure, I think, is the most important, to be honest, Amelia. But to be honest, you know, I think if you confess and say it's a zero-sum game, you know, you've got problems under the core Delaware thing. That's part of what the beauty of the benefit corporation thing is. Or if you're in a state or in Europe where there's a stakeholder approach, you are able to balance those interests. And sometimes you can make, you know, in that situation where you have statutory authority, you are able to say, look, there are going to be some decisions that might be adverse to the interest of the equity investors because we think that fundamentally as good people, we owe as an enterprise to treat our creditors or our communities or other people who govern the workforce every day with a certain amount of respect. And we are not going to go beneath that. So, and that's one of the, you know, I like honesty in the law and that's what a stakeholder law gives you. Even if it's a May, you know, I've got concerned about May statutes. What I mean by May is that you may do something because linguistically, if you may do something, it also means you may not, right? But it's at least you've clearly, and by the way, people should understand that 33 American states have constituency statutes. And so, you know, when people talk about corporate governance, they're not really looking at the capitalist world. And I include the Scandinavian nations that make all the high-end goods that the billionaires buy. I consider them capitalists, you know, market economies, uh, you know, and, and people, they seem to make really good products, right? And they have good companies. They almost all have a stakeholder orientation in their corporate law. So does, you know, frankly, places like the United Kingdom, uh, the Netherlands, um, and it's not uncommon in Australasia. And so in some ways, Delaware is a bit of an outlier, actually, Amelia, over the trend, but we're just so predominant in, in the U.S. that there's obviously a focus on us. Now I'd like to turn to some of your recent articles. The first one uh, that I read recently was published on March 27th in the Financial Times Moral Money. And in that ar article, you argue that the law should trump the desire to seek profits at this moment in time. Can you elaborate on, on that view? Yes. And that is important, you know, and it gives context to what we were just talking about. We talked about within their legal discretion, right, that, that, that stockholders can put. Well, the first obligation, actually, and it is a little bit historical bent to this that, you know, your listeners might be interested in is, you know, at the founding of our society, there really were no corporations as we know them now. There were only corporations that were specifically chartered with government by government with very detailed charters that the legislature would pass. A lot of people, even in Delaware, I think, Emil, you don't know where the word general comes from, from our statute, Delaware General Corporation Law. The idea of a general corporation law is you went from a specific charter for a particular company that would have to be passed by uh, the legislature to being able to operate within the scope of a statute. And you can go to the, you know, and, and form a charter and you have to follow the corporate law statute. So that's a general corporation law. Well, it was very specific even then. There were tighter constraints as we started to, as a society, but it eventually got to the point where there was much more general flexibility to do your business line. Because it used to be, you know, people would study history. If you went in and you, you were manufacturing, you know, railroad um, uh, ties, that was what you could do. And without stat, you know, uh, uh, unanimous approval of stockholders, you couldn't change the business line. That got kind of unwieldy, and that's where we started using fiduciary duties and other sorts of things to give more discretion. And the bottom line sort of became you could have a corporation that's charter really said the following. This corporation will do any lawful business 
by any lawful means. But so the bottom line, right, has been, though, you have to be a lawful business and you have to use lawful means. And this whole idea of stockholders, remember, the whole idea is that, you know, it's not in the law this way. I mean, the law is actually based on analogies to Republican Democratic theory. And there's a great young professor, Nicholas Bowie, out of Harvard, who's done some really interesting historical research that's demonstrating that our corporate laws really borrow from, you know, federalism principles, Montesquieu, Locke, the balance of powers, right, is this idea that the stockholders, you should run it because they're the residual claimants, right, that they're only going to get paid if everyone else gets paid. Well, the law does reflect that to this thing, which is, frankly, when you're closer to bankruptcy, the law, the directors have a lot more leeway to say, we're going to make sure paying our bills comes first and making sure that we can pay our creditors. And actually, as you know, Amelia, when the company becomes bankrupt, the focus really does turn to running the business to you know, deliver value to pay off as many of the creditors as possible, and the stockholders go out the window. And so what I was emphasizing, and it was relevant in the time of the pandemic, is there were people out there you know, sort of talking about stockholders and about other sorts of things and reminding folks that really that is not first order business. When you're in this kind of existential situation, the law really gives the directors a lot of leeway and even really encourages them. And, and at some level, when they get really at insolvency, requires them to put paying the ordinary course bills of the company and honoring its legal obligations first. And, you know, we felt it was, you know, it, it seemed important to remind people of that, you know, particularly in the context of this confusing, you know, shareholder maximization debate that's going on. I'm so happy that you wrote that article and that you reminded us that it's really the corporate charter that gives companies the license to operate and that license to operate, um, you know, is is really given to the company by society. And so in times like this, the equation changes and that that really is a legal obligation um, that, you know, as you say, uh, warrants setting um, dividends aside for the moment. No, I mean, people were really worried about whether they would get sued for, you know, having declared a dividend and not paid it, whether they would get sued by stockholders for not coming forward. And it, and people got to get serious about this, which is even in the context of these deals that are pending. The reality is if you have it, if stockholders have been promised something, but the corporation no longer has the money, I, you know, if you look at the corporate law statutes, right, Amelia, they focus very much on creditor rights and making sure that, you know, there is an exploitation of them for the stockholders. And, you know, in bankruptcy, an executory contract where somebody's going to come in and say, I should have gotten a premium or a dividend when a company's not able to pay its landlord. I mean, that's just not going to be a very high priority claim in bankruptcy either. And so it was important, I think, to be clear eyed about that. And I also think, you know, to be blunt, there are also fraudulent transfer and other considerations if, you know, a payment out of the corporation at this time might actually render it insolvent and unable to pay its bills. Okay, so now let's move from being clear-eyed about what the law is, um, while understanding that the foundation of uh, the law is the corporate charter uh, and the license to operate, to 
looking ahead to what the law perhaps should be. And you authored another recent article, an op-ed with Professor Dorothy Lund uh, on April 10th in the New York Times. Um, that article looked at how business should change after the crisis. So how should business change? Well, I think, you know, I think business needs to be more businesslike. You know, we tell ordinary households, and it's very difficult for ordinary households to do it, but everybody advises you, right, to try to save up so that you can, if you really lose your job and you don't have any cash flow for six months, that you can pay your bills, right? We encourage, you know, uh, these all these people, you know, when, when it becomes pledge week on C, you know, PBS, they come on and they tell you this, right? We came out of 10 years, Amelia, right, of economic recovery. Frankly, fueled again by a taxpayer buy, you know, bailout of the private sector. We then gave a huge boondoggle tax cut, right, to the corporate sector on the theory they were going to reinvest in American workers. The bulk of that went into increased buybacks or dividends. But after 10 years of all of this robust sort of recovery, what Dorothy and I were talking about is, you know, we understand that after three or four months, right, without revenues, you know, things are getting tough. We were within weeks. I mean, we were companies that really just didn't have, you know, we used the firm running on fumes. I mean, they really were running on fumes. I mean, and this idea, by the way, poor landlords, you know, apparently everybody just stops. It's not like ordinary people. You know, I get people who have rent apartments and live month to month or houses. You know, we have big corporations that just stop paying the rent, you know, ASAP because they didn't have the funds. And, you know, one of the basic things about a business is prudent reserves, right? And that, that's also a relation of the institutional investor community. You know, are, you know, to be honest, the index fund, the longer term investors should want businesses to have prudent reserves. And a lot of them didn't have it. And, and it also, again, what we saw was that the buybacks and the dividends didn't go into worker pay. And so, you know, that also didn't help American savings because so that, you know, most people, 99% of people, the biggest, you know, factor for them, Amelia, in terms of their ability to provide for themselves, but also their ability to invest is what they get paid. You know, it comes from their job. And when we've, had wage stagnation, that's also made the workers of these companies more vulnerable because they didn't have savings either. Um, and so we're saying coming out of it is we think we need to really align the system towards sustainable growth, that when you think about what American worker investors, and that's whose money the institutional investors have, is people who every paycheck we turn over money to, you know, Fidelity, Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock, and they control it until we retire. And so we want it, we don't want it quarter to quarter. We want it to be there when we retire or, you know, a lot of issues, college savings plans to help put our kids through college. Same thing is we want them to be good stewards and we want companies to be able to weather storms responsibly. And we also want, frankly, because most of us make most of our money as workers and we want our kids to have good opportunities. We want the returns of capitalism to be shared equitably like they used to be more in the past so that, frankly, workers have more savings, more resiliency, and are actually able to invest more in their own retirement. 
And so we propose a, a few things and we think this public benefit corporation model and for the listeners, what this really involves, Amelia, as you know, is moving from, you know, the idea, uh, even in some constituency states where you may have regard for your stakeholders, to an actual shall duty, where there's the duty to not just have a positive purpose in society, but to also commit to doing no harm, which is to not externalize the cost of the business, to be a good environmental citizen, but to also be a good quality employer who treats your workers with respect who respects your customers, and that really makes all the stakeholders of the corporation, you know, permissible ends, not just means of corporate governance. And it does also temper this Revlon doctrine so that in the context of a sale of a corporation, which is, you know, an important thing because we both know that's part of the natural life cycle of a lot of businesses. And if you're concerned for your workers and the communities that have invested in you over time, just go out the window in that, you know, how fair is that? Because those, those folks have made a lot of investments in you. In fact, I think there's gonna be a lot of pressure and Dorothy and I kind of avert this uh, around corporate law going forward because we've had yet another bailout of the private sector. We've seen the unattractive and I won't name names, but we saw some employers who I'm sure got huge subsidies from the locals localities where they had plants, criticizing them about public health things, and not maybe reflecting on the fact that they don't pay their full share of school taxes, that they've received huge tax subsidies to be there. And, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure around acquisitions going forward in this context, Amelia, valuations are beat up, especially if it's of companies that have taken, you know, federal assistance. And people are going to be asking legitimate questions about whether the buyer is going to protect the workers, going to protect the communities that help the company weather the pandemic. And, and so this benefit corporation model, which Dorothy and I tout, and, and, and a focus, an increased focus on workers, you know, we think if you're a company, you're not going to be able to avoid these pressures and that you're better off getting ahead of it. And we also think honestly that the pandemic and the it's in unequal effects on poor people and particularly black people and now the current tragedy that we're going through is only going to reinforce the feeling that corporations owe a duty that's broader to society and that we may need that we need to make the system work for all and so we think businesses really ought to get ahead of this. And we haven't even been able to talk about climate change, right? We're so diverted by other things, but that's not going away as a concern either. And so businesses are really going to have to work innovatively and hard and uh, think about how they meet these challenges. And, and so we're, you know, our view is this public benefit corporation model and a focus an increased focus on the well-being of workforces needs to be right up there with environmental responsibility at, at the forefront of corporate governance reform. So looking at corporate governance reform, just to drill down on this a bit more, are, as I understand it, you're advocating that companies um, that are being bailed out again should change their corporate form to become public benefit corporations. Am I overstating that or is that your current view? 
No, I actually think that that is what we propose. I mean, one of the things is there have been, as you may know, Amelia, and your listeners may know, there were some restrictions in the bailout on paying out, you know, doing buybacks. There were restrictions on executive compensation. Soaring executive compensation is perversely one of the consequences of increased stockholder power because corporate managers have been paid to basically serve the stock market and, you know, in some ways to be willing to do unattractive things to the workforce and to communities. Same thing with buybacks. Buybacks happen because stockholders want them. They're symptoms. Addressing symptoms is not as productive long-term as addressing, you know, what's really causing things. And so our view was this is an opportunity to move in a positive direction instead of having a kind of punitive approach. Can we actually, now that we recognize that, you know, we have a moment where we recognize again that corporations so much depend on public support, taxpayer support, community support, that though that they also should embrace a corresponding obligation to their stakeholders, that they do we would do this under state law, and that it would be a fair consequence to impose for receiving assistance. And there's also interesting Congress around this because more moderate members of the you know, the Congress are interested in the benefit corporation model. They might want more, Amelia, of a carrot approach. But, and Senator Warren, for example, her bill really borrows exactly from the Delaware um, Public Benefit Corporation statute, but would make every business above a billion dollars in revenue become one. And I've said to her, I actually support the concept generally. I think she should do it under state law because there's no need for the federal bureaucracy to be involved. And and I think Senator Warren is a very, very bright and talented person kind of gets that. And, and what I'm saying is I think Dorothy and I believe that there's a lot of um, common ground to be found between Republicans and Democrats and, and Americans of all kinds around the idea that corporations should treat their workers with respect in the communities and that this pandemic is another reminder of it. And rather than just do, you know, kind of gimmicky, not gimmicky, I mean, but frustrated, you know, things that are manifestations of frustrations like limit buybacks, it seemed to us more productive to orient the system long-term in the right direction. And you could really kickstart that with this um, sort of approach. So you mentioned Senator Warren's Accountable Capitalism Act. And um, one pillar of that act is addressing um, employee voice and giving employees more voice. And it's also a, a corporate governance reform, which you know we've, we've talked about before. Uh, what specific reforms would you recommend to ensure that employees are protected in the future? And I'm, I'm speaking specifically about corporate governance reforms. Right, because I want to be very clear that I don't think corporate governance reform is adequate or wrong. Right. I think we need living, a living wage to set a decent floor beneath all bargaining in this country. And I would say this about $15. The problem with $15 is it's not that it's too much anywhere. It's that it's too low in many places. What I mean by that, this foolishness that somehow there's some part of the United States where if someone gets $15, they're living some lavish, solid middle-class lifestyle is just crazy. And there are plenty of places, and you live in one of them, 
you know, with the very high cost of living and where, frankly, very skilled people have problems finding housing. You know, police, you know, detectives, um, teachers and administrators with graduate degrees, nurses and, and therapists who are working through the pandemic, you know, commute ridiculous things. So the idea and in Wilmington, Delaware, the idea that a $15, it's not adequate and there's no place in Delaware, but we should at least start there. And there needs to be labor law reform to actually give people who voluntarily choose to unionize a real chance. So I just have to set that context because we can't ignore that. But within within the corporation, I'm not against uh, the idea of worker representatives on boards. But if you notice the bills in Congress, and I'm actually working on a new academic piece to actually work through the problems in the U.S. of how you would do this. If you notice that these proposals don't discuss the how. And they don't discuss the who. And one of the things about German law, for example, is that only the domestic workers in Germany actually have the, you know, the co-determination rights that elect the, the board representatives. In the EU, there's some broader consultation, but, you know, American workers at Volkswagen don't vote. Are we going to do co-determination and only have American workers vote? How do we work this out? And the other thing that they forget about co-determination is it's not even the board level stuff that's maybe the most important. It's the works council stuff and the consultation on things like for family friendly policies, which is a big thing for me, which is work-life balance. For working families, having a dependable schedule, like where you can rely upon it and then build the support systems for your children when your schedule changes week to week is crazy. In the EU, Large companies have to consult with the works councils about that stuff. We don't have that in the U.S. And so one of my, so I'm a little, I'm not against co-determination, Amelia, but I'm skeptical that we're going to do it in the U.S. and we haven't done the thinking about it. So what I, I, I have focused on in Dorothy and I've talked about it and I have another article coming out about it is the idea of taking the compensation committee of a company and conceiving it, reconceiving it. So it becomes not just a compensation committee that focuses on top management, but really focuses on the workforce top to bottom. This builds up the new UK mandate, which is the, in, the, in the English corporate law now, there's been a change and you either have to have a worker director or you can have a committee, a workforce committee. Part of why I thought it would be useful not to have a separate committee to actually broaden the role of the compensation committee is that's more efficient. And what you would have is then them look at the workforce top to bottom and sort of how, how do we, who do we hire, including actually contracted labor? What is our commitment as an employer? And they'd also be able to situate, frankly, executive compensation at the top level, Amelia, within the context of the whole workforce and also evaluate how should the workforce be sharing with stockholders and senior management when the company succeeds? And we think about important issues like racial inequality, which is a big longstanding concern of mine. And when you see the pandemic and its effect on workers, and when you note that essential workers make less than the typical American worker, black people are more likely to be in the lower rungs and poor and, and the essential workers make less than the average American and black people are more likely to be an essential worker, that 
having a committee of companies that really focuses top to bottom on issues of incentivizing the workforce and looking at fairness is could be a very valuable thing and probably fits with the American context a little bit easier, Amelia, than co-determination. One of the interesting things I'd like to see the labor movement and business talk about, and I think people in the labor movement are interested in, is in the U.S., because we don't have works councils, you either have a union, and in the private sector, they're pretty rare, right? And you have a union, and you have a lot of voice, or you have no union, and you have no voice, because you're not able, employers are, for very good historical reasons in the U.S., limited in their ability to do anything like a works council. In, the, in Europe, if you don't have a union, it does not mean there's not workers' voice because as you know, Amelia, there are works councils. So one of the things I think with this committee concept could be some ability to let these committees oversee some forms of worker voice like a works council, so long as it's not a circumvention of the union. And I actually think the union movement is more open to that thinking about that because it might be baby steps towards full unionization and more American workers would get involved in this. And I think generally the labor movement cares so much about the best interests of workers that you know, they wanna make sure that you know, all American workers have more voice. And so, but I think this committee concept is evolutionary, could be quite useful. And I think it also, they would do a much better job of setting executive pay, I think, when they would have to recognize where it it fits within the context of where they're paying everybody. And from a business matter, one of the points I always make is $5 million more to the C-suite. That's a lot of pay for working information. And one of the things we really focus on is them focusing on the gain sharing. You know, when things are getting better, what share of that should go to the workers as opposed to just senior management and the stockholders and evaluating that historically. And also we are very concerned. We think it makes sense for them also to be the committee. You know, we, you know, you think of ESG and as you know, I, I, part of my passion is make sure workers are first and not lost is compensating senior management especially people who are involved in areas that really require them to be, you know, stewards of things like environmental responsibility, um, fair worker treatment, making sure that their compensation actually takes into account those factors. If the compensation committee really also has responsibility for human resources oversight, right? Things like Me Too, making sure that there's a harassment and discrimination-free workplace, making sure that we're welcoming and frankly being racially inclusive, then you're also able to set the compensation from top to bottom that factors those kinds of things that you care about into incentives. So it's not just all about total stock returns. So I think that's a very promising area. I think it fits well with our approach to corporate governance in the United States. It's evolutionary. And and if you put it together with, for example, labor law reform, moving towards the public benefit corporation model, um, and you know we can talk about disclosure and other things that, that make things accountable. And by the way, that's part of the benefit corporation model as well, as you know, which you have to commit yourself 
to reporting on adhering to the values you articulate and and reporting to the public about them you know i think we're talking about some you know not radical but very meaningful change that could make the system work better for everybody Absolutely. And I really like your proposal to have the compensation committee dedicated to compensation across the, the company. Actually, there is a, a, tr- a trend at the margins. There are a few companies that are reframing their compensation committee and actually changing the charter and the title to compensation and human capital or compensation and culture. Um, so uh, this is a, a very promising. Um, direction. Uh, I'd be interested in your reaction and others and listeners reaction. I've been toying with what, what to call it. I would, I didn't want to go away from the phrase compensation in some ways, Amelia, because I think I like that word when we're talking about the general workforce, because we've said so little about it for too long. And so I was reluctant to, and, and human capital. I just, that's a phrase I have an ambivalent feeling about. I was thinking about a workforce committee in some ways, but I actually liked at least for the short term, the focus on the term of compensation, but thinking about the many who are so critical to capitalist wealth creation. And we both were at conferences like this, where you could talk all day about sustainability, uh, the environment, uh, you know, taking part of your profits to give to someone, and you'd never hear about the workers, and you'd never hear about unions. And we can't have a sort of high-minded new feudalism. I mean, the reality is for workers, they do actually have to have some voice and leverage in, you know, say about their pay and benefits in terms of things. And so I think one of the things this committee also does is promotes a discussion at higher levels about reconciling your stated values with your actual behavior as a company. Yeah, and that's why I really like your reframing of ESG as EESG, even though uh, workers were, of course, in the S or the social. Yeah, but, they, but, but Amelia, you know what they told me? You know, somebody said they were buried in the S, and I thought that was a great phrase. I mean, that's actually where they were, and nobody would talk about them. I mean, you know what I'm saying is it, it really is striking, and it'd be interesting your academic and, and think about these things. I think if we read a lot of this literature, we would find strikingly little discussion about workers until the last few years. And, you know, I take, I, I've been persistent about this because I wrote articles for 20 years now on this subject and on worker voice. And so I'm heartened by this, but, you know, and I think my friend, Rick Alexander, who you know, he suggested, and this may be the way that we, whether we like maybe the term double ESG is a better way to do it, it might be more sayable than EESG. <laughs> but I, I do think workers need to be at the forefront and um, and buried in the S, they, they, they firmly were, you know. So let's move on to um, a third article that you wrote in the Harvard Business Review with Tim Yeomans and uh, our friend Bob Eccles. And so that one's entitled Three Ways to Put Your Corporate Purpose into Action. Um, can you walk us through uh, very quickly the first two, but then let's talk about the third, changing corporate form. And what does that have to do with corporate purpose? Well, what, what Bob and Tim, and Tim's a great guy who's at Hermes, and you know they're an internationally influential 
firm, as you know, very active in corporate governance and coming from the investment side. Bob is one of the leading business thinkers and has done inc incredible work on trying to, you know, come up with reliable metrics to for corporations to report on sustainability factors. And they were, you know, we are we all know each other and uh, and have gotten to be friends over the years and. They were talking about this idea of making purpose real. And Amelia, what they wanted to do is, you know, how do you just not have a label that's so diffuse, right? That it's not actually meaningful. How do you actually commit your company? And we were talking about, there's sort of two elements of this. You know, we talked about this before, which is some positive contribution you're gonna make, which is, you know, something that is an affirmative improvement in the good. And then also the commitment to just be generally a good citizen in the sense of as we go forward to try to make money and run our business, we're going to try to treat our workers with respect. We're going to try to be environmentally responsible. We're going to try to be a good community thing. We're going to try to respect our customers. Our products are going to be safe and high quality. We're not going to use deceptive practices. And how do you do that? And what their point is that you have to have a a statement of purpose that really is very specific and not generic. And this is one of the big things that Bob and Tim are on is if you read something and, and it would basically apply to everybody, it's like the word nice. You know, when you say that someone's nice, you know, okay, good. But what does that tell me about them? Right. And so that they want something that distinct and that really says something about you as a corporate <laughs> corporation. And to uh, to then align that with accountability measures, right, Amelia, where you've said these are the things you want to do. How can we tell that you do the you're doing them and what is your progress you're making towards it? And where we got to the discussion and how the article came out is I said, you know, there is a form of government governance that really embraces these core concepts. And you know this benefit corporation model from the beginning, you have to have this, which we talked a little about this model, but under the Delaware thing, you have to have a statement of purpose. It's not enough though, that you're just gonna be good in some areas, you have to be an overall good citizen. One of the big debates in Delaware, for example, Amelia, when we debated, when we did the public benefit corporation, was it was very important that these corporations be all around good citizens that you not just be able to sort of say, this is our one affinity where we are doing some good, that we you can't do that while trampling on your workers or your customers or your communities. And so there's this commitment to ethical citizenship all around and then having a specific version of the good. And when, when Tim and, and Bob and I were talking about this, they said, your concepts about making purpose real, right? And putting yourself out there as a company and then holding yourself accountable to standards, there's an actually a model of legal corporate governance that goes along with that because the benefit corporation statute, Amelia, you have to have that statement, you have to have the standards, you have to make the report. And where I said to Bob and Tim, and it does something more, it actually takes it from a may obligation to a shall obligation. And which I actually think is a serious thing. I believe that directors and human beings generally take their obligations seriously. 
and it's not that you have to have a huge club over them, that they will typically, if they're told that that is what it is required, they will do it. But there is also this idea that you can bring suit right under the act. It's not for money damages, but it's for, it's like almost like a civil rights suit, Amelia, declaratory injunctive relief. So to the extent that Bob and Tim were, were struggling for something to make purpose real, when we talked about this, it just fit nicely because there's a real accountability structure for it. It's not a, a radical move because, as you know, only stockholders get to bring the suit. But frankly, if they're socially responsible funds, union funds, even if the index funds, which are talking about sustainability, if they are true to the world, word, they'd be able to bring a suit. It's not a money damages claim, but injunctive relief in this area can be important. It also, as I said, in the sale process, um, you could sue to say, look, you're not taking into account the workers because you can, so you can essentially have a Revlon or a Unical suit, but to make sure that it's being sold to a responsible bidder. So it seemed to us that it all kind of came together nicely. And when you think about the political support for it, you know, that exists and that it's a kind of, again, a nice middle way in the U.S. You can think about we might not get to co-determination, but if we get to this benefit corporation model with a shall duty towards all the stakeholders and the workers, then we do this broader sense of what a compensation committee is about. Then you're starting to really talk about something. And so that was the idea. And we also thought that with the BRT statement, you know, it's a kind of interesting test for them and whether they mean it, because it's different to say, we want to do good things for people, trust us, to say, not only can you trust us, we're giving you some account, you know, accountability tools to be able to make sure that we're actually living up to our word. And so that was our sort of focus and, uh, and we're actually continuing with that with conversations with business leaders and with institutional investors, because it's also a bit of a mirror test for our friends in the index fund community. I've, I've, I've been a big fan of Mr. Fink's statements. I've been a big fan of State Street in particular has done some interesting moves. And if Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock and Fidelity would support public companies in moving to this model, it could become the standard. Yeah, that was my that was going to be my next question. Where's the investor support for the public benefit corporation? Because of course, um, in order for a company to convert, it would need its investors to support that conversion process. And and but I think one of the things they've got to talk about is you know it's sort of matching your walk with your talk. I like that. And how real is this? And also, if you as institutional investors are are not willing to take this stuff seriously and to support this to my mind that just puts more wind in the sails of the folks who would argue that we need to go further and give workers or other constituencies voting rights you know and so people ought to be thinking about whether you know if they if you take some incremental steps that are important but you know, still maintain the traditional model that's existed in the U.S., whether that's preferable to perhaps more thoroughgoing change, you know, and it's obviously unpredictable where we are as a nation. Um, 
but I think this could be a constructive path. And as I said, I also think it's one that is not very partisan because I think if you poll these issues, you know, you know, and you look at where the constituency statutes are, you know, they're not in all just the democratic states. They're very, uh, you know, there are deeply Republican states. Many of them have constituency statutes. And by the way, Amelia, many of them have public benefit corporation statutes. In fact, there's a state called Kentucky, which has a rather, rather powerful senator from it, and they have both a public benefit corporation statute and a constituency approach to corporate law. And that might not be surprising given the people of Kentucky, you know, are working people, you know, and, and are really affected by whether corporations take their duty to their workers series. Just, you know, I'm a coffee addict, but I, I just think workers and worker voice have not been at the forefront of some of the, you know, especially some of the entrepreneurs or the founders of companies, um, you know, who, who focused on some of these issues, workers have not necessarily been at the forefront of their message. But it's interesting, as you know, Silicon Valley, worker voice has started to become a more salient thing when you saw some of the issues at Google and other places. And I think when you see, when again, when we're seeing the effects of the pandemic on working people and their conditions, you know, uh, I think there's going to be a scrutiny on some of these companies about how they're treating their workers going forward. By the way, I've been pleased generally, I want to do says, I think Many employers, you know, despite the fact that their balance sheets might not have been ideal, deserve to be applauded for their concern for their workforce during this difficult time. It's not been all that, you know, we might dream of, but I do think it's it's fair to say that many businesses have really tried hard to ameliorate the harm to their workforce and to be sensitive uh, about it at a difficult time. I, I agree with you and and thank you for, for noting that. And it's a marked difference from the financial crisis of 2008 in that regard. I always like to end the ESG beat with a magic wand and a crystal ball. We've talked about a lot of the reforms you've been advocating for, but if I handed you a magic wand today, what are some changes that you would make? My longest standing passion is actually been in terms of the magic wand has been what a, a longer school year and day could do to help us um, really create better lives for working people and particularly disadvantaged people and, and, and to overcome our history of racial inequality, you know, social stability. I think in general, we need a new New Deal and focusing on things that are relevant to, you know, companies and our, and our broader nation. I think if we orient our corporate governance system towards sustainable growth, and, and, and Amelia, actually do some tax policies that go along with that, which is a financial transactions tax, which would reward longer term investing and deter speculation, eliminate the carried interest um, provision. Um, you know that the definition of long term capital gains in the United States is one year, that's oxymoronic. How about if we tax capital gains that are held for less than five years, we tax them like personal income. And then we turn those revenues towards investment in infrastructure and American workers to simultaneously tackle the challenge of climate change and create quality American jobs. You know, I think that would be a, a huge thing. And if you put go that with the things that we've talked about, which is committing to a real living wage and keeping it current, giving unions more of a chance 
when workers want to join them and bargain to do that. And having our corporate governance system move to one that actually has a, a shall obligation on the part of our corporations to treat all their constituencies with respect, particularly their workers, and that we actually require for accountability that large corporations and institutional investors report to the public about how they're taking workers into account, their environmental practices, their treatment of their uh, consumers. Uh, you know, I think you have a very important change. And if I had a magic wand, we'd elect somebody who was my first political hero, who's from my home state, who I think if you listen to him, a lot of these things, you know, people say Joe Biden is a moderate. And I kind of agree with that in some ways, which is Joe Biden is a person who likes to bring people together. But if you've ever listened to the vice president of IVAB over time about working people and about the, the importance of work to people and the feeling that parents have when they may not be able to give their children a better life or a secure future and how difficult that is for them. And his recognition that unless you deal with that fundamental sense of economic insecurity and frankly heal the racial divide and bring, you know, bring black Americans more into uh, the middle class, then our social compact is will really fray and we will not live up to our ideals as a nation. And, and I think there's a chance that out of the sadness, the joint sadness of this pandemic and what we're going through in the wake of, of the murder of Mr. Floyd is a chance for us to all reflect on what we really value most and, our, and to try to focus on common ground. We have a lot of assets as a nation and we have a lot of allies. And if we pull together to draw on our common values, as you know, Amelia, these are the considerations in, that are the issue in the, in the EU. These are the kinds of issues that drove the Brexit debate. These are the concerns of folks in Canada, Japan, Korea. These are not just American issues. And if we all pull together and really draw on the traditions and what we're most proud of, of frankly, coming up with a market system that works for all, then I think we have a very bright future. And so it's not a very positive moment we're living through right now. But I think we got to think about what, what the power that we all have as citizens to make change this November and to really build on the binds that, you know, the, the bonds that tie us together. And when we look into the crystal ball, um, what do you see? Do you see that happening? You know, uh, I'm always typically a half empty guy, you know, but I don't know whether it'll happen. I just know that the one thing, and I think the vice president said this eloquently yesterday, you know, the one thing we have is a duty to try. And I think if we keep trying, there's no reason why we can't make this world a better place. And there's no lack of wealth in our country. There's no reason why people can't all live with dignity if we commit to it. And there's no reason we can't tackle the, the issues that divide us. And so, you know, I, I, I think that we need to be realize we can do big things as a nation and commit to them. Whether it'll happen, I don't know. I, I know a lot of good people 
are working really hard to try to make it happen. And one of the great things about a period right after a presidential election is when you're four years from the next one, you have the longest period of time from it. And if the next president puts working people central, things like infrastructure to tackle climate change and create jobs, right? When you put those kind of issues that everybody can relate to on the table, and I do think some of these corporate governance issues, Amelia, are like that. When you have corporations should focus on being good citizens to all their stakeholders, that workers should be a primary consideration. When you focus an agenda on that, where there's a lot of common ground and they're really not issues of left, right, they're just basic, you know, really to be issues, they're issues of human values that over the, that over the period where, you know, we confronted the problems of, you know, unregulated capitalism, we came to certain lessons that we're just embracing that tradition and reinvigorating it, then I, I do have some optimism that, frankly, there's the ability to forge some bipartisan progress if, you, if, it, if it is focused in that way. I do worry if you try to do everything all at once and, you know, one, that we can't afford everything. And so there has to be a core agenda and, and, and a focus on it. And I think this framework of uh, the American worker and also tackling as a nation climate change and what that can actually do for our economic vitality, that gives a, a, you know, a way of looking at it that I think doesn't divide people and where you know, there is some ground for optimism of real progress. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And more importantly, thank you for caring about workers, writing about workers, and being on the front lines of fighting for workers. All of this work matters, and I look forward to seeing it have great impact in the years to come as we build back better. Thank you, Amelia. It's been great to be with you. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.